have a Bible or an electronic version thereof, Matthew chapter 6, picking up where we have been going. And as we look at it this morning, uh, some of the things that uh, I want to say uh, might be a little bit out of the ordinary uh, as we will be addressing prayer, but also some of the modern day perversions of it. Uh, I just pray for God's wisdom as we uh, look at that today and His guidance for us. Father, I thank you that you have given us access into your holy presence. And Lord, your word warns us uh, that there's going to be two things that we're going to do uh, in perverting that privilege. Lord, we looked at that one before, last week, uh, that we would masquerade, that we would pray for a show. Lord, today, as we look at that second warning that we give that we would pray to try to manipulate you and get what we want here done. Father, I pray that you will burn our hearts. May we see that in prayer is the joyous privilege of coming into your kingdom presence, uh, to meet with you, to seek your peace. Father, guide our hearts and minds now through the you do. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've looked at Matthew 6, we've looked at a couple different things, and this is kind of a, just a general outline of where we've come from and where we've been. Uh, the major overarching uh, portion of uh, verse six or chapter 6 is verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness. This is the outworking of our faith. Everything that, that chapter 5 talked about, uh, that, that uh, inward truth that comes in, that righteousness that penetrates, will work itself out. And in doing so, as it works out, uh, there's going to be the giving. When you do your good deeds before people, uh, what do you do with that? How do you do it? How do you do that in a proper way before the Lord? Uh, we've been looking at prayer. Uh, we'll be looking at it again next week as well. Uh, how do you pray properly? How do you do it so that you're not doing it to be a show, or to make it something of a masquerade, and that was the theme of last time. And, and the first warning that God gives us is that in our prayers, uh, at the activity of actually doing the prayer, don't make it a show, and we looked at that in depth. Today we're going to look at when you actually do pray, and you engage in pray, or execution of prayer, what do you do to make that uh, acceptable and the way it ought to be before the Lord, and not a manipulation of him in order to try to get what you want the way that you want. Um, some of us are pretty good when it comes to asking for things. And as you were younger, I wonder how many of you ever had a plan for asking your parents for something. Uh, you wanted to go and you wanted this thing. And this thing might not be readily given, so you know you got to do something. Perhaps you prepare a special meal for the person, and I'll soften them up a little bit. Or you uh, get, get one of the family members that stands the best chance of getting the proper answer to do the asking. Or maybe you, you just butter the person up. Now, I have to confess that the girls in my house are really good at this. And Daddy loves it. You know, when the guys try buttering Dad up, it's like, what, what's wrong with you? What's, you know, when the girls do it, it's like, yeah, okay, what do you want? Here, take my wallet, enjoy. You know, that, that subtle, fun manipulation can, can be a, a kind of nice little thing. I remember growing up, 
uh, whenever we wanted my parents to do something. I was the youngest. Uh, and, and while I still had the cute little boyness, you know, that little boyness that, that you lose at a certain point and it's just not cute anymore, well, well I still had that every time. It's like, man, you go ask them because you're their favorite and they'll listen to you. So whatever would benefit them, I was the one that would do the asking because the thought would be is to somehow twist, manipulate to get what you might not have gotten if you didn't do it a certain way. And the danger is, when it comes to God, knowing that he is all-powerful, that all good gifts and all perfect gifts come from him, that we would somehow take that humanness over into him and say, you know what, I'm use prayer to get what I want from him. I'm going to manipulate things in that kind of fashion. Uh, in the portion of scripture we're going to look at today. And when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. A couple things I want to draw out of that verse before we dive into it in, in more detail. The assumption here is that when you know God, you will pray. When you pray. It's a condition assumed it's true. Not that, that, that maybe if you ever do decide to pray. No, when you pray. That will be a normal part of being a believer, that you know God, you're part of his family, when you pray. And you're going to see in there a couple do nots. Do not keep up empty phrases. Do not be like them. And in the original language, these are pretty emphatic expressions here. Uh, they're called preemptatory aorist imperatives. Is that exciting? Basically what it means is this admonition here is a big deal. It's like if someone were near a cliff and you were to say to them, don't step off of that. That would be one kind of one. But you really realize what could happen if they do. So what you do is you, in an imperative way, in an exclamatory way, don't step there and you stick your arm out to hold them back. That's what this passage is saying. Is do not do this in any way, shape, or form. And God is putting his spiritual arm out saying, let me rein you back. Because the error that's being spoken of here, if you fall into it, will be uh, tragic in its consequences and what takes place. Because your father knows what you need before you ask for him. We had said before in chapter 6, Father is always, is mentioned many, many times. It is always before their eyes, and the fact that God is to be before them is to keep them from falling off the cliff, so to speak, to falling into some of the other heresies or problems. So we're going to see in this use of empty words, empty phrases, or many words, there was a historical situation that Jesus was talking to. There was a problem. People were doing this. But we're also going to look today at a contemporary situation where the same kind of sin is being perpetuated often on television by the TV preachers that we would see in different places. So in a historical expression of it, uh, empty phrases has the idea of babble. And it doesn't mean babble in the sense that you can't understand the words, but it's a lot of useless and superfluous words 
as if words themselves have the power and are the key to success. So the feeling was among these people at the time, if I say the right things and I say them often enough, then I'll have the magic power and the formula so that what I want will happen. We can wear God down. As a parent, have you ever been asked something so often you finally give in? Yeah, that happens. And this is the idea here is like if we just keep at him long enough, we'll get what he, he, he isn't really wanting to give to us. It's kind of a doubt of God's character. So they were really uh, into this way of praying. And one of the tenets of it is the Gentiles prayed to each of their gods. They had something called a pantheon. So they would go to this temple and there'd be a whole arraignment of gods everywhere. And then they would take their list of stuff that they wanted and they would pray to each god with the list and the formulas and the expressions uh, kind of mindlessly at some point. Then they would go to the next god and they would do that with their many words. Then they'd go to the next god. And these pantheons could be full of many, many gods. In fact, anytime somebody came along with a new god, they didn't like down that god, they just added it to the shelf. And here's another god, let's put that one in there. And the pantheon would even get bigger. So their prayers would be full of all these words and all these formulas, and they would just go on and on and on. They thought that they would be heard because of their many words. They in many ways had formulas that were repeated over and over again. Uh, there are branches of, of religion today where people pray something and they pray it over and over again. And, and it's kind of like a monotony kind of thing. And they can mindlessly do it because they pray the same phrase so often they think that because of the formula, somehow God will be pleased and he will hear what they are saying. Uh, prayer is reduced to formulas a way to get what I want. It ceases to be that wonderful experience of going into the very throne room and kingdom room of God and having conversation with him where we are changed and our heart becomes melted to his will. It just becomes a way to get Santa to do what I want, to bless me, to take all my troubles away, to give me all the good things that I want. James 4.3 says this, uh, You ask and do not receive because you're asking wrongly to spend it upon your passions. In other words, your passions are all you really care about. Getting what you want. And that was the contemporary situation of the people of the day. In Ecclesiastes, we read these words that really bring a lot of wisdom to the whole area of prayer and what we utter before God. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You see, prayer isn't something that's measured by the yard. So the more things I say, the more likely I'm going to get what I want. 
And the longer I pray, somehow God will be more impressed with my prayer and, and go on and on and on. And, and why don't we need all of that stuff to get God to do? And the why here is, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I was kind of joking about when my girls would come to me and, and oh, Daddy, can we do this? And, and, and as if, like, I don't really want to do what they want me to do for them. As a father, and I will call myself a loving father, because I like to think that, there isn't anything that I desire more than to do good for my children. I want to. I want to do what is best for them. So no matter how much they come and ask me for something that might not be helpful, I won't do that. Now, it's not because I don't love them. I know that in giving that, it could be more hurtful, could be more of a problem. So the idea here in prayer is that you're not coming to a God who's holding out. You're not coming to a God who's vindictive, who's there trying to punish you at any turn and make you grovel for the sins of your life that have been forgiven in the cross. It's not as if you're going to a God that doesn't want your best. Prayer helps me understand that many of the desires and passions I have are not for my best. Could you imagine if you were given everything in this life that you always wanted? I don't think any of us would be in this room. Because those things often can spoil and hurt somebody tremendously. God doesn't need to be coerced to pour out this part of love through prayer. Your Father knows what you need before you ask. Intimate conversations, and that's what prayer is, have no room for manipulation. They are designed to bring us to the same page as our Father as we trust in His character. So as I go to prayer, it's not like a battle of the wills, that I want this, God doesn't want it for me, and I'm just going to use prayer as my tool to make it happen. Now a contemporary expression of this kind of uh, use of prayer is found in what is called the Word of Faith for the Prosperity Gospel. Uh, that is so prevalent in so many places around us today. For its history, founder is E.W. Kennan and Kenneth Hagin following him, being a disciple. And those that would be followers of it today uh, in a smaller way, and many of them to one degree or another, some of the big names would be Kenneth Copeland, Oral Roberts, Benny Hinn, and we had a graphic up there last week of many others who get behind it one way or another. And as we talk about this and this, this uh, heresy basically that is being used and is on TV every time you turn it on, uh, is an idea that we can make happen here on earth what we desire this whole or the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Today it's on over 5,000 TV stations. They have 33 international satellites, uh, the internet cable systems all over the globe. Every day TVN takes the Word of Faith broadcast to the United States, to Europe, to Russia, the Middle East, Africa, Australia, New Zealand, the South Pacific, India, Indonesia, South Asia, and South America. You get the idea that this is a, a worldwide thing? This isn't just a United States 
Christianity Today estimates that more than 147 million Africans of the 890 million people there are called renewalists, Pentecostals, or Charismatics who believe the health and wealth gospel. Sociologists say that the message of money, cars, houses, and the good life is almost irresistible to poor and oppressed audiences. Going all over the world saying whatever you want, you just name it, you just claim it, and it will happen for you. Uh, we're going to touch on it today, but we're not going to have enough time to really develop all of the issues involved with it. So we're going to have a, a Bible study that's going to come, and you've got it in your Wednesday reminders, and it's with the dates are written in your notes, to, to watch a video called The American Gospel. And in that, it kind of deals with the, what's happened to the true gospel when it's become mixed with the American dream that you can have whatever you want. And in doing that, we're going to take three weeks and watch a segment of this video, because the video itself is two hours long. Uh, but I just want to show you a quick trailer of it to give you an idea where it's headed. And this will be a more in-depth study than what I can give you today. Or we're just going to kind of scratch the surface a little bit. Uh, but it's something we need to know about because often what's being said in these uh, sermons and as, as this message goes out is mixed with some good stuff too. And it's not uh, in some of the teachers that, that teach it, you can hear 90% some really good things. But 10% of it is this health, wealth, and prosperity which really colors all of it. Uh, somebody once joked that if you were to take a, a recipe for brownies and put a little, uh, only 1% dog do in it, uh, how many of you would still eat the brownies? You know, it, it doesn't take much to corrupt everything. And when we change the gospel into something other than what God intended to do, uh, we read the verse last week that if anyone should preach another gospel, let them be accursed because there is no other gospel. So the quick trailer here is for the Bible study, and then we're going to pick up from there. It is a pain to know that there are people who do not know Jesus. It is a greater pain to know that oftentimes Jesus and Christianity is being distorted. Who told you you can't accomplish your dreams? I had no clue what the gospel was. I never really heard it. You know, God wants you healthy. I worked for my uncle Benny Hinn, who's a famous faith healer. As far as I knew, he died and rose again so that I could have a prosperous life. But what was going through my mind at the time was that this was real. Charlatans and snake oil salesmen have been doing this trick for decades. People think basically that religion is there to boost your ego, make you happy, make you more successful, make life go well. Um, and as I got older, I really started to question God and how he could send people to hell. Scripture says that we make the mistake of thinking God was like us. And what you do is you create a God who only wants to give you all the desires of your heart. Your destiny is called and out. It's time to start living large. We stayed in hotels upwards of $20,000 a night. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to be sick. And nobody wants to be poor. All the things that Jesus says, we have to be willing to set aside to follow him. They take all of those things and they make that the attraction of the gospel. 
we are exporting the very worst of what Christianity has to offer. I'm strong, I'm healthy, I'm blessed, I'm favored, I am a victor, not a victim. I'm going to live a long, productive, faith-filled life. In terms of biblical Christianity, Christianity is about dying. How can I just continue to live my life as if this isn't true? So I abandoned my version of the American dream, and I said, I will do what I can to take the gospel to the nations. A lot going on in our world around us today. Uh, May 18th, 25th, and June 1st. Mark your calendars, and we're going to have that more in-depth study here if you'd be interested. Before we look into some of the tenets or ways that this American gospel puts itself out there, I want to just give a quick reminder of what the true gospel is. And this passage of scripture has been viewed by some as the gospel in a nutshell. It's not all that the gospel is, but what is the good news of Jesus Christ? What is the good news of God's kingdom? Is it that you can have whatever you want if you follow these certain guidelines? Or is it something much bigger and much more awesome? We read in Corinthians, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And its availability to us, the good news of the kingdom, is that when I put my faith and trust in him, I become part of his kingdom in the very life that I live right now. And I begin living kingdom life in this earth that will one day see its eternal blessings in the kingdom of God forever. It's a, a free gift. It's good news that I don't have to live this life. That it gives me something no, no matter what storm comes my way, I have a kingdom guide that will take me through it. I can put my faith into that death, burial, and resurrection. That it was Jesus dying in my place, not to give me stuff, but to give me him, to give, to give us who he is. And that gospel becomes then the, the launching point for the Christian life. And the grace that comes in the gospel when we receive it is the grace that we live by. So that kingdom living, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, becomes the way I live right here and right now. And I'm going to give you six quick pillars of the pure gospel. And in any one of these, if you take it and distort it, uh, you lose the essence of the gospel, and in fact, it becomes a different gospel. And I'm going to go through them quickly. Each one could be its own sermon or series. But some of the things that the gospel stands on is, number one, is that God is sovereign, and he holds all authority. Now, if you're in church a lot, that probably doesn't surprise you. That is the essence of the gospel. He is in charge. What I really, when I get saved, I'm saved from him because his wrath abides on me. I am not right. My sin needs to be forgiven. He is the sovereign. He holds all authority and power. And I need the blood of his son to save me from God's wrath. 
what I deserve because of my sin. God is sovereign and holds all authority. Number two, God is triune. The word is trinity. Some people balk at that because it's not actually found in the scripture, but it's a theological word used to describe the teachings of the scripture. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. All of the persons of God are involved in every divine action. They all are involved in creation, but all involved in salvation. Uh, and, and in every act that happens, the triune God in three persons, one essence, is acting. And what happens in a lot of fault teaching is that they, they call it modalism, where God's really, the Holy Spirit isn't really a person. It's just the force of God. It's just God showing himself in a mode. And that's where they get the word modalism from. In fact, some of the, the TV preachers today say that there's nine Holy Spirits uh, that are involved in life. And then, and you'll hear some of that when you come to the study. That, that, and it's a, a, not a person, but the Holy Spirit is a force. Any Jedi fans here? A lot of parallels to that idea of faith. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, and who God is and who the Holy Spirit is. But this pillar, once you change it, you change the gospel. Another pillar, man was created in the image of God. Fell into sin, cannot save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to change or merit God's favor on our behalf. Being made in the image of God doesn't mean we are God. We are not him. We have been made in his likeness in certain respects. But God is still God. God is still sovereign and in all authority. Fourthly, it's called the incarnation. If you've never heard that word before, all it means is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And he is the one who bridged the gap. He is the sinless Savior. So in the incarnation, he didn't set aside his divine nature and just become like us. He retained his godhood, added humanity to it, and in essence became the God-man or the perfect substitute, and this is the fifth pillar, the substitute in our place. The essence of the gospel is we owe a debt we cannot pay. And Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. And in doing that, he took the punishment on himself that we deserve. And when I put my faith into that gospel, he comes in, cleanses my heart, forgives my sin, makes me a member of his kingdom, and puts me in his forever family. The substitute for me that I should have done. And finally, number six, is faith. Faith is what I exercise in the gospel. It is in Hebrews 11.1, one says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is what I exercise. It's that confidence, it's the trust of my heart in the gospel that changes everything. Change, distort, any one of them. And you change the gospel into something else. Now, as we talk about Word of Faith today, it's a little hard to nail some of these teachings down because there's no creed or doctrinal statement that a Word of Faith teacher will sign up to. 
and, and here's the listing, like I gave you a list of six things here. You're not going to find it, but you pull together the teachings and you come up with the theology that is behind all this. Not all adherents of it uh, cling to it with the same tenacity. Not some of it, um, some of them will all, they won't all say it with the same um, audacity or the same clarity. But behind their teachings are the things that we're going to go over today. And the reasoning why they believe they can make God do whatever they want to do. Often truth is mixed with error, words are redefined. So I'm not in doing this bashing those who would use spiritual gifts in a different way than maybe Catholic would see what they're going to use. It's not bashing of necessarily someone who's at a Pentecostal or a charismatic church uh, and, and the, their view of gifts per se. You're going to see when I teach this, talk about this theology, that this is way beyond just disagreeing about which gifts are today and which are not. Uh, it goes much, much deeper than that. And let me do that by giving you four major tenets of these word of faith teachers and what it is that they're, when they're on TV, that they're conveying and what they're saying to everybody around. The first one has to do with words themselves and what faith actually is. And what the belief behind this is, is that believers, that would be every one of us, has the power to create reality. You have the power to create reality, to speak things into existence, primarily money and wealth. That it was given to you to be able to speak that into existence. Now, does that sound appealing? When it comes to the end of the month and the checkbook is not quite where it should be, and would you like to have the power to say, 500 more, please, and make it happen? I mean, this is something people just want to believe that this could happen. So words are not just words. This is the formula part of prayer. They're containers is the key word for understanding. And when this word is, this, these words are spoken in faith, they will release power and speak things into reality the exact same way Jesus spoke the earth into existence. God spoke the earth into existence. So words with faith together release power that creates reality. It's modalistic. The Holy Spirit becomes a force, not a person. You will hear the terms force of faith, the power to unlock, Words manipulate the faith force. This sounds starting to sound a little maybe New Agey kind of thing. To speak into the universe, to say positive things, to just get those words out there because when you use the right words, you have the power to create. There are laws uh, that are supposedly governing the faith force. And they're said to operate independently of God's sovereign will and that God himself is subject to these laws. Remember I said God's sovereign, he has all authority. One of the ideas in the word of faith theology is that God doesn't have full authority. He, his will is not always accomplished. There's laws that govern the faith force and God can't manipulate those. So when you use the right words with the fourth faith force of faith, then it will happen whether God wanted it to have, have it happen or not. 
One of the teachers, Andrew Womack, of, of this uh, theology, uh, conceives of faith as a force conveyed by words that bring about reality. And here's this quote. If you say, I think I'm going to get a cold, you will actually create the cold. Unless someone else, someone else counters your negative words by saying something positive. All of this takes place independently of God. Manipulated. He doesn't have a choice. If I do this right, he has to obey. Joyce Myers said in one of her internet broadcasts, it says in Romans 4.17 that we have a God who gives life to the dead, and he calls things that be not as though they already existed. If there's something in your way, speak it. So that if I speak it, it will become real, and I can change things. Words and faith. And if you listen to these preachers long enough, you will hear those things bleeding through in their conversation. You have the authority. You can make this happen. Number two, and this is the really, really scary one. It's the belief of who God is and who people are. It's called the little God doctrine. Uh, we are of the same essence as God. He is spirit. We are spirit. It's very important to these teachers. Their body is just a container. The real you is spirit, and that's who is God. God is spirit as well, so you're of the same essence. Jesus could do what he did because he had secret knowledge. If you've ever heard of Gnosticism, you're going to see how this creeps in here. Uh, he did what he did because of his secret knowledge. We have access to that since we are of the same essence as God. So you can see when they say we were made in the image of God, they mean spitting it. We were made like him. We are in some way a God. Adam is the exact duplicate of God. And in their teaching, God gave his authority to them. In, the, in Genesis 1, um, 28, when it says God gave us dominion over the earth, it's a perversion of that. We were to till and to govern and to cultivate the earth and care for it. They take this as God saying, you know what? You people, Adam, you get full authority. I'm giving it up. I give up authority for what happens in the world. I'm giving it to you. Adam sinned, but there's the power to regain that authority by people everywhere. Kenneth Copeland said, Adam was not a little like God. He was not almost like God. He was not subordinate to God either. Just like Jesus, when he came into the earth, he was not a lot like God. Adam in the garden was God manifest in the flesh. So you have Adam being the same as God, but given the authority by God to him. And in their teachings, God won't take that authority back because he's a gentleman. And that Jesus actually came into the world to regain his authority that he had been, had been given away. The teaching goes on to say every born-again person is as much an incarnation as was Jesus Christ. That people are like God being born again. This one, when I read it, I didn't understand why a divine lightning bolt didn't come out of the sky. But Kenneth Copeland says this. God looks at me and says, I am. And you know the great I am teaching of God. That is declaring of who he is. I look back at God 
they say, I am too. You see, the teaching is that people are little gods. They have the authority to speak reality into existence. Kenneth Copeland goes on to say, The Spirit of God spoke to me and said that some realize that this realizes that a twice-born man, that's Jesus, he's twice, he was born again just like you. In fact, he didn't beat Satan on the cross. He went to hell, and in hell defeated Satan, and that's where Jesus was born again, is what they were teaching. So he whipped Satan in his own domain. And I threw my Bible down and said it like that. And I said, what? A born-again man defeated Satan? The firstborn among many brethren defeated him? He said, this is God supposedly talking to Kenneth Pope, you are the very image and the very copy of that one. And I said, you don't mean, you couldn't dare to mean that I could have done the same thing? He said, oh yeah. If you had known and had the knowledge of the word of God that he did, you could have done the same thing because you are a reborn man too. You could do what Jesus did. If Jesus did it, you can do it because you're both born again. You're both made out of the same stuff. Humanity is elevated to the status of Godhood, made in God's image, placing at our disposal seemingly unlimited power. God is lowered, man is elevated. Claiming God's promises, at this point you can speak anything you want into existence. And this is the backbone of the theology that lets the health, wealth, and prosperity person stand up and promise that you can have whatever you want. Thirdly, healing is part of the atonement. This has created great heartache in the hearts of many people. Word of faith teachers proclaim that all Christians must be in perfect health. And the caveat beyond that, if not, is because there's sin in your life. How many of you are in perfect health? <laughs> a bunch of sinners. You see, it, it, it just doesn't stand the test of reality, but these teachers will stand up and, and say that, you know what, your child died of a disease? It's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. You have a disease today? Shame on you. You're like a little god. You should be able to be delivered from that. You should never, ever have bad health. And any time you don't, it's because of the lack of faith those words, that faith force that you can use to make things happen. They say, don't ever pray for healing. You are to use the authority that you have been given. You don't pray for healing. You heal people. And that is the teaching. In part three of the Believer's Authority, Andrew Womack states, when people see that, that some sickness, disease, tragedy comes into their life, Instead of taking their authority and rebuking the evil and the devil and commanding him to leave, instead they go to God and they beg God. Oh God, please change the situation. Oh God, please get the devil off my back. And it's not within God's power and authority to do. He gave us that power and authority. He later says in that same conversation, it's never God's will for us to be sick. He wants every person healed every time. He also says the Lord never told us to pray for the sick. In the sense that we ask him to heal them, he told us to heal the sick. And Jesus told us, uh, Jesus told us to use uh, us to heal the sick, not to pray for them. Scary. The guy isn't really in charge anymore. 
You have the authority and the power to speak things into existence. And people who cling to this today, they want to see healings happen. So they come into the situation, and, and you'll see in the documentary when you come out, the, the distortions and the, the, the things that go on behind the scenes. But what they come is with this promise that, yeah, I, I want to see this healing, and, and it doesn't happen. Guilt? Oh my goodness, we'd have guilt. Feeling that I've been made this little God, and I have this power and authority, and it didn't happen? I, I just need to trust more. I need to, and this goes to the fourth one, give more. Because the fourth thing that makes this such a dangerous gospel is the teaching that you have to give to get. God wants you wealthy. He wants you rich. And if you're not rich, it's your fault as well. Because you had the power to speak it into existence, and you did not. Oral Roberts, I think, was famous for saying, have a need, plant a seed. And we'll see what he means by that. Um, Joyce Meyer say, when I talked with Dr. Roberts today, and we talked about this seed of faith thing, he said, when you give, you get a receipt. You get a receipt for whatever you get. In heaven, though, and when you have a need, you can then go with your receipt and say, you see, God, I've got my receipt for my sowing, and now I have a need, so I'm cashing in my receipt. The idea I gave, I'm going to keep track of that. I will go right to the face of God and say, here's what I did. Now, you have to meet my need. Have a need, honestly. Jesse Duplantis, addressing cornerstone pastor and televangelist John Hagee. Duplantis explains that God is his comforter. Because when you've got some stuff, it brings you comfort. After clarifying that he is not just a millionaire, but a multi-millionaire, Jesse says to Hagee, the Lord, I give him the glory, he's my comforter. If he's my comforter, Dr. Hagee, I live in comfort. That's, the old, that's not only spiritual, but that's physically too. Because when you've got some stuff, it brings you comfort. Jesse goes on to say that those who would see it otherwise know nothing about the Bible. You see, comfort, that's a comforter? That's, that's an internal, that's a Holy Spirit person thing, not a force that changes. John Hagee uh, has said, when you give to God, he controls your income. There's no such thing as a fixed income in the kingdom of God. Your income is controlled by your giving. According to Hagee, Christians grow prosperous through giving because God created a universe where it's impossible to receive without giving. Everything that God controls gives. Gives and gives again. You do not qualify for God's abundance until you give. And you can see instance after instance where, where audiences in these TV shows will actually chant during the offering that things are going to come to them because they're about to give their offering and the payoff will come and when you do this God will bless you with an abundant financial windfall if it were true we'd see millionaires you know one of the tragedies this hits, this hits around this hits you where you live I remember going with somebody from the church to one of the people who had a Kansas speak request. They didn't have two nickels to rub together. In fact, they were losing ground and not gaining. And we were going to help them and to do something. And, and as we were in conversation with them, they said, you know what, I just got my check up in the Pepper Social Security. 
and I want to give half to you, Mr. Hansen Keith, and half to this guy on TV. And, and it came out in conversation like, you know, you don't really need to do that. That's, that's nothing that's required. It's, well, if I do, God's going to help me. They've gotten sucked in, and the two pence that they even had, they were willing to give with the idea that the formula works. You give to God, and you will get more from Him. Another gospel. A gospel that's being preached everywhere. Those who give a... I'm sorry, Andrew Womack. Those who don't give financially to the work of the gospel will not have God's financial blessing in their personal lives. On the other hand, those who give to the word of the Lord will work of the Lord, will have an abundant harvest of finances. Help, wealth, prosperity. Because I'm God. He really can't do anything. The teaching of manipulating God is as alive and well in our world today as it is, as it was back in the time of Jesus Christ. People thinking that they can manipulate God through the use of empty words and phrases and many things that they say. God warned us. He warned us very drastically, very pointedly. Don't masquerade in your prayers. And don't ever think that you're going to manipulate God. That you have the power to create and to bring into existence the things that only God And we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer last week, and I encourage you, or next week, and I encourage you last week, read it. And I want you to read it and read it and read it again. Because after all of these warnings, he says, pray then like this. And read the Lord's Prayer and ask yourself the attitude, the demeanor. Is there any demanding from people to God in that prayer? Or is it a prayer of humility? Is it a prayer where I have the authority to make things happen? Or is it an acknowledgement that God has all authority? It makes my, my blood cringe on the inside, my heart cringe on the inside, when I hear people praying so presumptuously and bossing God around and commanding that this happen as if I have authority. God says all authority is his. He is sovereign. We pray in humility after the pattern of the prayer that we're going to look into next week. Over time, prayer reorients our desire to pray before You see, in the word of faith, my desire to take my name happen. The very act of talking to God inclines a person in a certain way. You want to have a conversation appropriate to Just as old couples become more like each other over time, the person who spends years hearing and responding to God's company becomes more like at the secret level. The places that only God is. That's what prayer does. Prayer gives me the opportunity to live life even with broken To live life even when there's not enough money in the chest. To go through any storm. Not to somehow live above and all and have health, wealth, and prosperity all the time. If you take a quick peek at the end of God, or Matthew chapter 6, it gives you where Jesus is going with all of this. 
as he speaks about prayer, as he speaks about your alms and fasting, and gives all these encouragements, he gets to the bottom line at the end. And we read these words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. You see, the seeking of God's hand, I mean, his faith, not his hand. It's seeking him as a person, his righteousness, and all those desires and stuff that you think you want so bad, he will add that as needed, as what's best for us in his own plan and design. Before he even speaks those words, seeking first, he said, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek you first, the kingdom of God. That's prayer. Seeking God's kingdom here on earth, and aligning my desires with that. Not making God give me the desires of my heart. Not issuing a list of wants. It's a sober warning. And it's so prevalent around us that I wouldn't doubt that some of us or some of the people we know are affected by this. The gospel is pure. If anyone, even an angel from heaven, were to try to change it, also let them be first. Be careful what we watch on the what we let play in the back. Because often that gospel is quietly hammering away. The beauty of the prayer Jesus wants. Never masquerade it. Don't ever use it as a tool of But after this matter, read the Lord's Prayer, pray it this week. Let it absorb into your heart. Because this is the heart of what God says prayer is in is all about. Father, I ask that you will guide our hearts and minds from a world that has been so hated by false teachers and other gospels. It's possible, Lord, if we don't know the truth, that we will be swept away as well. Help us to understand the pure gospel, the death, the resurrection of your Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit within us to recreate and to bring your life to the very life we live for. Father, for those that have been banished in one way or another by the word of faith theology that clung to it, I pray that you will open their eyes. The scales will fall off that have blinded them to the truth and that they will not be folded. And Father, I pray that halfway folks will be so understanding and knowledgeable of you that they will be discerning and know in an instant when somebody is teaching false theology. Father, help us to use prayer to be everything you desire to be. Help us to see who you are. Let who you are change who we are. Jesus, Christ.